0: So let's cultivate our motivation <clears throat> and take a really broad picture of the situation, considering not just our own wants, our own preferences, our own needs, but broadening our mind and considering the welfare. Of all living beings, no matter who they are, and not developing solid conceptions about them because they change from life to life. Our relationship with them changes from life to life. The basis upon which we designate a person. Their person changes life to life. They don't have any findable soul or self. But they still want happiness and freedom from misery, just like us. And so since we've met the Dharma, let's really have the intention to use this opportunity as much as we can to create virtue, purify non-virtue, learn and practice the Dharma so that we can be of the most effective and skillful benefit and service to all these living beings. So we've been going through approaching the Buddhist path for a while. We just finished the chapter on loving-kindness and mind training. And now we're going to begin Chapter 8, which is called A Systematic Approach. So this chapter is talking about uh, various ways of organizing the teachings. Because as most of you probably know, um, the Lam Rim is one way of organizing the teachings. Now the structure was set up, general structure was set up by Atisha, and then all four Tibetan lineages have their own version of that. And, but in addition to that, there's other ways of structuring it. And even with the rim, in this series, there's uh, we're not always following the typical structure. There's sometimes where we've changed the order because it seems to fit the modern audience better. Okay, so in this chapter, uh, His Holiness is going to talk about different ways of of kind of structuring the teachings uh, so that we can get this world view. And the reason why this kind of world or general take on on all the Dharma teachings and how they fit together, why that's important, is because you may have noticed um, at Dharma centers nowadays, there may or may not be a resident teacher. If there is one, uh, you know, you have some classes. The classes may be on a particular topic, and you may learn that topic well, but you don't necessarily learn how it fits in with other topics. And then, in addition, you have visiting teachers that often arrive on Friday, give a teaching on Saturday, an initiation on Sunday, and fly out on Monday. And uh and you're going, Okay, what am I supposed to do with this? What in the world is an empowerment or an initiation? Uh or even the the Lama didn't give that, you know, gave four or five days at the most teachings on a particular topic, and so one weekend you hear about Uh, Bodhicitta, the next weekend you hear about the faults of samsara, the next weekend you hear about Amitabha's pure land, the weekend after that... You hear about the twenty sangha. The weekend after that, you know, you hear about, uh, you know, what else is there? The the form and formless absorptions and how to develop concentration. And so you're getting all these little bits of teachings, but you're going, how do they fit together? <clears throat> you know, so that I can practice all of them. You know, I get so many teachers, but teachings, but how do I put them together? and construct a practice. And what order am I supposed to practice them in, and how do they fit? So, um, you know, that's one of the beauties of the Lam Rim teachings is it really systematized and ordered the that. And, uh, you know, often they teach us the Lam Rim. I remember when I was learning it, they were saying... Uh, you know, we have the Buddhist teachings and then we have the, the treatises and commentaries by the great Indian pandits. And then we have the Tibetan commentaries, okay. And then we have the Lam Rim that distills all of that into the essential thing. What they don't always tell us is that the lamrim, was actually constructed for people who had done all of the philosophical training of the Geshe program, who now wanted to go meditate, and it was drawing out the most important points for them to meditate on in, sequ- in sequence. They don't always tell us that, yeah? Yeah. And so when we start practicing the Lamrim, um, for us, many of the topics seem quite advanced uh, because we grew up in a very different culture. And, and the Lamrim assumes you believe in rebirth, it assumes that you have respect for spiritual mentors, it assumes that you're a Buddhist. You know, let's take it really basic, you know. Um, it assumes that you're from Tibetan culture. And, uh, you know, that, that doesn't fit us, okay? So that's why this particular series, The Library of Wisdom and Compassion, was written to try and get something that, that uh, fits a, 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 a modern audience that did not grow up in a Buddhist culture, Okay. And also, His Holiness included in that young Tibetans. Because, uh, and I understand why, because on a few occasions I've taught in the Tibetan schools in India, and the teenagers there ask questions very similar to the ones that Westerners do. You know? And I've been so surprised, you know, when a Tibetan says, How do we know that the different realms exist? Was like, oh wow! You wonder about that, <laughs> you know? Uh, and you know, it's an important question. Okay, uh, and so also I remember when I was learning the Lamrim, we were told that the you know all these uh, great treatise uh, writers and commentators and so on distilled what was important, and all we had to do was learn that with emphasis, (laughs) that, (laughs) and, uh, you know, that it was, um, you know, they said that the Buddha's teaching was like the raw cotton, the Indian um, pandits were like the cloth, the the Tibetan commentators were like uh, cutting out, the or the cloth and stitching it into a ready-made garment so it, when we learned the lamrim we were getting the ready-made garment all we had to do was learn it and practice it and that was it okay but that isn't really in the spirit of the buddha's teachings because the spirit of the buddha's teaching is to question things and to debate and to go back and forth and say, is it really like this? Or is it, you know, in another way? But, uh, you know, that hasn't been so emphasized in the Lamrim teachings. Although it's very clear when you teach a group of Westerners that they ask questions that Tibetans don't ask. And this can sometimes be quite embarrassing uh, for both parties because you're trying to explain a question to a Tibetan Lama who is like, you know, is coming from a totally different space. Yeah. So I think we need to come back again to having more discussion and not just it's a ready made. Suit, and all we need to do is learn it and practice it. But, you know, what do these really mean? How does it apply to our life? How do we enact it in our culture? Yeah. Old Tibet, pre, pre-1959 Tibet, very different than now, you know. And as you see, we get all sorts of emails from people asking us how to apply the teachings, you know, especially in the age of Trump. So, I, you know, they'll probably talk on it. I have a, a question, another question that somebody sent in, you know. And, the, you know, we get a lot of questions like this. It's like, the world is like this now. How in the world am I supposed to practice? Because it isn't just a thing of, you know, going and sitting down and learning the teachings and having your own peaceful meditation. Anymore, it's uh, you know, it's a different situation where we have to be more active, and uh, you know, I think about Tibet, the pre nineteen fifty nine Tibet, and they really needed to be more socially involved at that time, and more active and more knowledgeable about world affairs than they were. The thirteenth Dalai Lama was. He was very farsighted, very progressive. But aside from that, you know, they they had their own little uh, place at the roof of the world, and they thought, you know, the idea that anybody would invade and occupy it was ten million miles away from their mind. They never considered that, never thought of it, you know, so that's when you know the time they could have joined the league of nations nobody cared nobody even wanted to know yeah but had they joined the league of nations it, you know after the first world war it would have been a completely different ball game when when the chinese communists marched, marched in because they would have been already established as an independent country as it was China said they weren't. They've always been uh, a vassal of China, and we've had an amban there for the last two or three hundred years. So, uh, you know, n- you can't say we're occupying your country. You were never uh, your own country. Yeah? And so you have these kinds of things where, uh, you know, what's going on in the outside world. Is going to influence our ability to practice the Dharma. You know, there are certain historical times, you just go up to the mountains, you stay in your monastery, everything's peaceful and smooth, and there's not going to be a lot of interferences from outside. But, you know, Tibet faced that from, you know, about 1950 until the present and who knows what we're going to be facing in terms of what is happening in this country now and the populism worldwide and how are we going to practice during all of that so uh, all of these things you know different approaches to understanding the the dharma different systematic approaches and then also, you know, what kind of things do we need to emphasize uh, in today's world so that we can cope with the situation, the karmic situation we're born into? Yeah? Because it's not just, uh, you know, the... The peaceful world, well, it was never so peaceful after the Second World War, but it's a lot more, it was a lot more peaceful than it is now, I would say, you know? So, uh, yeah, how how to put all the teachings together in our minds. Okay, so, Chapter 8, His Holiness starts out. Awakening refers to the ultimate qualities of the mind. The path to awakening eliminates the impediments and enhances the qualities leading to this state. Tibetans translate bodhi, the Sanskrit word for awakening, as jangchub. Jang means to cleanse and in this case refers to true cessation, the, the cleansing or elimination of afflictions, their seeds and latencies. Chub refers to having cultivated all positive qualities. Jang highlights the Buddha's abandonment of all faults, while chub denotes their qualities and realizations. So when the Tibetans translated certain Sanskrit words into Tibetan, they they often uh, you know Gave a literal translation, and other times, they uh, gave words that express the qualities of the the object that they were translating. Okay, so here, jang Chub, yeah, to cleanse and to um, to develop. Yeah, so to cleanse away all the hindrances. All the uh, afflictions, all the obscurations, to develop all the good qualities. The word for Buddha is sangay. Sang again has to do with cleanse and clean, and gay means to expand or develop. So again, the same kind of meaning: a uh, cleaning away uh, all of the defilements and. Developing, expanding all of the good qualities. Yeah. So that there's, uh, you know, when you look at the etymology of a a certain word, there's a lot of meaning behind it. Yeah. Like the word um, for refuge is kunchok. Yeah. But uh, kunchok means uh, rare and precious. Yeah. It doesn't mean refuge. It means something that's rare and precious. What is rare and precious? The three jewels. So they're called Kunchok Sum. The three, Sum is three, the three precious and rare ones. Okay? So, uh, yeah, so there's this kind of thing, uh, etymology that, that the Tibetan translators did. Awakening is not granted by an external being but is attained through the process of cleansing and cultivating our minds. Okay, so this we have to really get into our heads. Yeah? We have to cleanse and cultivate our own minds. The potential to attain it is already within us. The nature of the mind is clarity and cognizance. So the capacity to perceive all phenomena is already there. We need to eliminate the obstacles to doing so by realizing the empty nature of all phenomena. So that's one paragraph. As Holiness just told you, the whole path. Okay? This is what makes a great teacher. Somebody who can synthesize everything very, in a short way, and who can expand it, you know, to in a long way. So newcomers to Buddhism occasionally ask me what it feels like to be awakened. Yeah, people go up to the (laughs) the Dalai Lama. I hear you're Chenrezig, the Buddha of compassion. Is it true? Are you really a Buddha? What's it like? Mm. You know, and they expect His Holiness to say, Well, yes, I am a Buddha, and it's like this, you know. But his holiness doesn't do that. He says, I'm just an ordinary monk. No more, no less. Okay, and that shows his unique qualities. Hmm. Okay, so he says, I don't know, but I think it must be a sense of deep satisfaction and fulfillment due to knowing reality. So when we say, where are we going? We want to attain enlightenment. What's it going to feel like? Yeah, a sense of deep satisfaction and fulfillment due to knowing reality. To use an analogy, when we are ignorant about something, we feel uncomfortable and try to understand it. Once we have understood it and that obstacle has lifted we feel tremendous relief. We we feel pleased because we are fully confident that our understanding is correct. When we become fully awakened, we will directly realize all that exists. So imagine the deep uh, satisfaction that we will experience then. This gives us an idea of the mental joy a Buddha experiences. One way I, I think of you know what awakening might be is, you know, you never get angry, no matter how somebody treats you. You're never offended, you're never insulted, you're never angry, you never feel... That people were unfair towards you. Yeah. You don't resent others. You're not jealous of others. You know, when I think like that, it's like, wow, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So people could say whatever they want, they could do whatever they want, they could be as. Bigoted, as hypocritical, as insulting, as harmful, and your mind is just like a smooth, placid lake. Yeah. Doesn't shake, doesn't move. Yeah. You have compassion for them. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Okay. So the next section is called Paths for Spiritual Development. So here he's going to start with different ways of organizing the teachings. To attain a Buddha's qualities, we need to develop many diverse aspects of our body, speech, and mind. This is important. He says this many times, that our mind is very complicated. So one type of meditation alone is not enough. To transform our entire mind. Like he said here, we need to develop many diverse aspects of our body, speech, and mind. Yeah, so it's a whole process. It's not one simple meditation that's gonna clear everything. Yeah, there's a lot to transform, a lot to develop. Throughout the ages, Buddhist masters have used various paradigms that set out a progressive path to do this, and in this chapter we will explore some of these. These step-by-step presentations outline a systematic path that allows each person to practice at his or her own level and progress in a comfortable and gradual way so we are not competing with anybody else to see who can learn the most who can gain the realizations first who's going to hit on sit on the highest throne who's going to say i became a buddha before you you always were competing with me, being one up. You thought you were so good because you were ordained before me and I just got became a Buddha before you. Bleh. Uh, okay. So <laughs> yeah. So there's none of that, yeah? We all, we're not competing with anybody. It's not a contest. And we have to practice the path on our own in a way that feels comfortable to us. And it may be different than how our friend practices. Yeah? And we go at different rates, and we may emphasize different topics because we have different problems. Okay. So the whole idea of comparing and competing throw it out. Yeah, it doesn't fit here. We'll begin with Arya Deva's presentation of three stages of the path. So here's a, a quotation from the 400 stanzas. Aryadeva. So Aryadeva is what, third century? Second, third century? Long time ago. He said, first, prevent the demeritorious. Next, prevent self. Later, prevent views of all kinds. Whoever knows of this is wise. Okay. So this verse may be understood in two ways. In the first way, Yeah, the first line, first prevent the demeritorious, indicates the necessity of abandoning the ten paths of non-virtue and practicing the ten paths of virtue in order to prevent an unfortunate rebirth and to gain a fortunate one. So the first thing, prevent the demeritorious, practice the basic foundational ethical conduct of abandoning the ten non-virtues practicing the ten virtues purifying yeah too then the second line next prevent prevent self means to abandon grasping at the coarse self of persons a self-sufficient substantially existent person okay so this is one of the many ways in which we misunderstand who we are yeah, but this is a comparatively coarse or gross way at understanding it. Okay? While abandoning this grasping for a self sufficient, substantially existent person does not bring arhatship or Buddhahood, it does stop the course of afflictions, which is beneficial. So just negating. The sub, uh, self-sufficient, substantially existent person is not enough to attain liberation, but because it, it um, you know, abandons the gross grasping, then it abandons the, the gross defilements that arise out of that gross grasping at persons. Okay, so that's the second line. Then the third line, later prevent all kinds, uh, views of all kinds, indicates realizing the emptiness of true existence and employing this wisdom to eradicate all afflictions from the root. So this is the wisdom that negates the subtlest erroneous projection we have on how things exist, which is thinking that they're truly existent or inherently existent. So you see the progression. First, uh, you know, abandon the gross negativities, get your ethical conduct in order, yeah? Second, um, overcome the, the grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, and then that subdues the afflictions that come with that. And then third, go deeper into how things exist and realize the emptiness of all persons and phenomena, and use that realization, that wisdom, to completely cleanse the mind of all defilements. Okay? So, those he's setting out those three steps. Hmm? So, if you look at the traditional Lam Rim, yeah, the, the first one is kind of like the The path of the initial level being. Yeah, who's striving wants to get a good uh, rebirth. The second one is kind of like the the middle level person um, when you take the four noble truths as they're commonly accepted across the board in all tenant systems, where you're negating not ex- uh, inherent existence. But just a self sufficient, substantially existent I. And then the third, it would be like the Prasangika view that you would learn uh, as in the third uh, level. Okay, the advanced practitioners. Okay, so that's one way to understand Aryadeva's verse. Okay, the second way to approach this verse is to start with the final goal and work backwards. This is another one of His Holiness's specialties. He'll take you on a causal thing going forward, and then he'll take you on the causal thing going from the result back to all the causes, uh, you know, that brought that result. Okay, so here's we're going backwards. So to attain to attain full awakening, all cognitive obscurations must be eradicated. As indicated by later prevent views of all kinds, so that would mean eradicate the cognitive obscurations. Okay, so remember the cognitive obscurations are what prevent having omniscient mind. Yeah, so they're the latencies of the afflictions and the subtle dualistic view that they they cause. Okay, so to li- eliminate these, and here he's going to go into tantra. It is not sufficient to contemplate the object clear light, which is the ultimate nature emptiness, okay, based on subtle dependent arising. So it's not sufficient just to contemplate emptiness based on subtle dependent arising. You're gonna go what? But that's the final view of the the What are you doing telling me? That, that's not sufficient. Okay? So from the viewpoint of highest yoga tantra, that's what he's talking from now, we must make manifest the subject clear light, the subtlest mind that arises after the 80 conceptions and three appearances have dissolved, and to use it to realize suchness. So he's saying just, Refuting inherent existence and realizing emptiness is not sufficient. You have to do it with a specific kind of consciousness. It can't be the comparatively gross consciousness of the unity of serenity and insight that all levels, you know, of practitioners gain. It has to be the subtlest mind that is made manifest through the tantric practice. That mind has to realize emptiness in order to cleanse the mind of all defilements completely. That's what he's saying. And so that mind arises after the 80 conceptions and three appearances have, have dissolved. So, When the mind gets more and more subtle, you have different stages. There's a stage of 80 conceptions that dissolve, three appearances that dissolve, and then after all of that, you get to the uh, subject clear light, the uh, fundamental innate clear light mind. Okay? And use that to realize suchness. Prior to this... Okay, so that's the the ultimate thing we need to do. Okay, prior to this, we must realize emptiness and eradicate the afflictive obscurations, as indicated by next prevent self. So we're starting. We just started with the third view. Now he's doing the second view. Okay, mm-hmm. so the second view next prevent self means realizing emptiness and eradicating the afflictive obscurations. yeah the one the later prevent views of all kind is eliminating the cognitive obscurations that are much more subtle. So he's working backwards okay. So in order to do this, in order to remove the uh, afflictive obscurations by realizing emptiness, Okay, We need a continuous series of good rebirths in which we can practice the Dharma. The way to attain these is to first prevent the demeritorious, the ten paths of non-virtue. Okay? So both ways, you can see there's a, some overlap but also some difference in the presentation of these two ways. Okay? In Lamp of the Path, Atisha sets out three stages of the path according to three levels of practitioner, great, medium, and initial. So now he's going to go into another way of organizing the teachings. The path of the person of great spiritual development eliminates the cognitive obscurations so that he or she can become a Buddha in order to benefit all sentient beings most effectively. This individual aims for the highest, longest-lasting bliss and peace for self and others, full awakening, and thus wants to extinguish dukkha and its causes for both self and others. So that's a pretty big uh, thing to bite off, isn't it? Eliminating dukkha and its causes, not only our own, but that of all other beings. The cognitive obscurations that impede full awakening are the subtle latencies of ignorance and the appearance of inherent existence that they create. To remove these, a person must cultivate bodhicitta, practice the six perfections, and unite serenity and insight on subtle emptiness. This is the path of the practitioner of great capacity. So here again, He's starting at the end and going backwards, you know. So the person who is the highest level of spiritual pra- uh, capacity, who is, uh, you know, almost at the point of enlightenment, they have to eliminate the cognitive obscurations. So, you know, because they're seeking full enlightenment for self and others, what do they need to do to eliminate the cognitive obscurations? Okay. They need to cultivate bodhicitta, practice the six perfections, unite serenity and insight on subtle emptiness. Okay? And, of course, enter the tantra, but he's not spelling that out here. Okay? The path of the person of medium spiritual development, so this is the next lowest grade, eliminates the afflictive obscurations, the, which are the afflictions, their seeds. And here it says, and uh, the polluted karma that causes rebirth in cyclic existence. I'm not sure that that is an afflictive obscuration. It's definitely part of the Second Noble Truth. Yeah. But for example, Arhats. Um, they still have the seeds of karma that will cause rebirth, but those seeds can't ripen because the afflictions have been eliminated. Mm-hmm. So, that write that down. We have to check that point. Okay. And according to who is that? Hmm? According to who is that? Who is? The school holds it, that, 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 uh, I think everybody holds that. Yeah? So, this person, the middle capacity uh, person, seeks liberation, the piece of nirvana that is free from the cycle of uncontrolled rebirth. So, arhats have not eliminated all karma. Buddhas have. Or karmic seeds, I should say. Yeah? Uh, Buddhas have, but Arhats have not. Yeah? But they can't ripen. So, to do this, he or she practices the three higher trainings: okay, higher training and ethical conduct, concentration, and wisdom, motivated by the determination to be free from cyclic existence and attain liberation. Okay? The path of the person of initial spiritual development. Develops coarse el- eliminates <laughs> eliminates coarse negativities such as the ten paths of non virtue, killing, stealing, unwise and unkind sexual conduct, lying, divisive speech, harsh words, idle talk, covetousness, malice, and wrong views. Okay, so again and again, in in both ways of talking about Aryadeva's verse. In this way of talking uh, about the way that Atisha set up, everybody starts with following the law of cause and effect and eliminating the ten non-virtues. Yeah, These ten cause unfortunate rebirths in the future as well as constant problems in this life. The beginning practitioner seeks the happiness and cyclic existence that comes from pacifying her gross mistaken thoughts, words, and deeds. Okay, So an ordinary person might just seek the happiness and cyclic existence from doing this. And uh, think about it only in in this lifetime. But really, to be a Dharma practitioner, that, that light... You have to think about future lives and be uh, wanting to attain a good rebirth in the future life. Okay? To express this path in a forward sequence, now he's going to change and go forward. Okay? A practitioner must first and most urgently reduce his or her gross afflictions and harmful actions and practice the path of the 10 constructive actions. Okay. Although his ultimate goal may be nirvana or awakening, he must first deal with the most blatant obstacles to happiness by taking a defensive stand against them. He must especially prevent taking an unfortunate rebirth that would forestall his being able to practice the path for a long time. So you'll remember when we studied Precious Garland, you know, uh N- Nagarjuna was saying there's two things one is your uh a good rebirth the second is is your um what we, we called it uh yeah no no, we translated it differently upper no, higher rebirth and highest good yeah we did it but where both parts had highest in it, yeah. And so, uh, faith, remember, was the cause for upper rebirth, because you had to have faith and understanding about karma, and wisdom was the cause for the highest good, which is liberation and awakening. Okay, so the first level, got to have a good rebirth, because if you don't have a good rebirth, you can't do anything. Yeah? You're really shot. So. So you know, the most urgent thing we need to do is make sure we create the causes for a good rebirth, and purify any causes for a bad rebirth. Yeah, because once you're born in the lower realms, very difficult. Yeah, very difficult to get out. So why we have a precious human life? That's why it's so important to, to, um, you know, to practice especially ethical conduct. And we're on the eve of doing EML, and what is exploring monastic life all about? You know, the the pradimoksha precepts, which are, you know, one of the foundations of which are the foundation of ethical conduct. The second level, yeah. So the first level was getting a good rebirth, okay, by practicing. Uh, abandoning the, the ten non-virtues, practicing the ten virtues. The second level is the actual combat, going on the offensive to destroy the afflictions. So The first one was defensive. Don't let the affi- afflictions run your life and knock you off the path. And this is going on the offensive. A practitioner who is victorious over uh, the afflictions attains nirvana. The third step is to remove the latencies or stains left on the mind stream by the afflictions. Having eliminated these, the practitioner becomes a fully awakened Buddha. Okay, uh, Okay. let me read the next... Oh uh, Well, let's look at the chart, okay? So you can see the level of practitioner, initial, middle, and advanced... Yeah, the direct aim, what's the, the principal purpose of the initial fortunate rebirth of the middle, liberation or arhatship, of the advanced full awakening or Buddhahood. Okay, what do you practice as an initial level being? Pacifying car- coarse, harmful thoughts, words and deeds, and practicing the ten virtues. okay. And what you're eliminating is the 10 non virtues. For the middle level being, yeah, that, see, that person seeking liberation, you have to do the three higher trainings, which again includes ethical conduct. There, now that's the first of the higher trainings. And what you eliminate is the afflictive obscurations, this, the afflictions, their seeds, and polluted karma causing rebirth and samsara. That's That last part is what we're going to check. Okay, then the advanced level practitioner. You know, what they practice to attain full awakening, the six perfections, the four ways of gathering disciples, and Vajrayana. Okay, and what they eliminate, the cognitive obscurations, which are the latencies of the afflictions and the appearance of inherent existence. Okay, so it's, these charts are very helpful. It's, you know, it's laid out very nicely. And if you can remember all of this, it's really helpful. Because then when you hear different teachings, you, you know, kind of know where to put them in this whole scheme. Yeah, And then we also know that, uh, you know, we ask ourselves, well, am I an initial level being, a middle level being, or an advanced being? yeah, have I uh, accomplished what an initial level being has sets out to do? No. Okay, so then we know what we have to emphasize, okay. The thing is that um, because we have we want to start the path out with the ultimate, uh, goal of attaining full awakening, yeah. But we practice. We start practicing where we're at, and we plant seeds for the higher stages. Okay, but it's very important to practice where we're at because if we don't, if we just say, "Okay, well, the highest thing is tantra, so I'm just going to practice tantra and learn tantra." but you haven't done the practices of the initial and middle-level capacity beings, your tantric practice is not going to bear the kind of results. It's not going to lead you to enlightenment because you're constructing the roof before you build the foundation and the walls. Okay, So it doesn't mean that we don't do any of the high-level practices we we plant seeds for those but we have to really make sure that we take care of the foundation practices because if we don't get a, another human life or rebirth in the pure land next time you know then yeah we're we're in trouble okay so we really need to make sure that we do that so someone asks If one has a mind that aspires for full awakening, does that necessarily mean that one has conquered the ten destructive actions and doesn't struggle with them? No. (laughs) It means you have that long-term motivation, and when you do the practices of the initial level being, you can bring in that advanced level motivation. Because your ultimate aim is there, even though you're practicing here. Okay, so let's say I want to go from here to Delhi. Yeah, my ultimate goal is Delhi. But right now, I can't think Delhi, 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 you know, kind of uh, uh, plan how I'm going to get from the airport to where I'm staying or to Dharm- from Delhi to Dharamsala because I'm not even in Delhi yet. Okay, so I, I say, let's say my ultimate goal is Dharamsala. Okay, so, but I that's my ultimate goal, and I have that in mind. But what I do today is I start with planning the trip. I start with buying the ticket and thinking about what I need and practicing my, my packing my suitcase. And then I, you know, have to go from here to... Um, Spokane, yeah that's not the highest level path it's you know you go here to Spokane and then you once you get to Spokane then you get on the plane and you know there's some delays and you know the plane doesn't leave when you want it to leave and anyway finally it goes and then you have to go to Seattle and you know you stop in Seattle for a while and you know you you go to Starbucks and, and so on you know kind of your last Starbucks before you cross the ocean and so but your whole the whole time you're doing this your mind is thinking Dharmasala okay which is different than a mind than a person who is uh, pack who is thinking I'm going to Seattle but they're they're booking their tickets and uh you know, packing their suitcase and going to Spokane, but they're only thinking Seattle. Okay. So the whole time we're thinking Dharamsala. Yeah. Even though you're doing the same kind of initial practices, you have to do that. Okay. So these three levels or capacities of practitioners form the basic outline for the presentation of the teachings in this book. Certain meditations are prescribed to cultivate the motivation specific to each level and other meditations to actualize the intended result of that motivation. The meditations on precious human life, death, and gross impermanence And the possibility of taking an unfortunate rebirth help us generate the aspiration to have a fortunate rebirth. We attain such a rebirth by taking refuge in the three jewels and observing the law of karma. Okay. So the idea here is, yeah, if you're concerned about your next rebirth, you don't want a lower rebirth, you realize you need help, so you turn to the three jewels, Yeah, this assumes you're kind of already a Buddhist, so taking refuge in the three jewels is not problematic. And the first for you, and the first thing advice you get from Buddha Dharma Sangha is keep good ethical conduct. Okay, in other words, observe the law of (laughs) cause and effect. Okay, In, in this series of books, uh, in this series. We didn't put refuge right after death and um, and uh, talking about other realms. We put it actually uh, in with the path of the middle level being, because the path of the middle level being talks about the four truths. The last two truths, true cessation and true paths, are the Dharma refuge, okay? So by understanding uh, the four truths, that is helping you to already have a deeper understanding of what the Dharma refuge is, which helps you then to understand how it's possible to, for the Sangha ex- to exist and, and for the Buddha to exist. Okay? So we rearranged the topics because most people who didn't grow up Buddhist, find the topic, many of them find the topic of refuge too difficult for them, you know. It involves hearing all these qualities of the Buddha that are far beyond our experience and, uh, you know, it's kind of too much sometimes. And also because some people uh, have... You know, they they were raised in other religions that they left because they saw hypocrisy or the religions didn't make sense or whatever. So they're coming into Buddhas and they're not so eager just to trust based on hearing marvelous qualities. Okay? And I know, you know... When you hear the, the the qualities of the Buddhist Dharma and Sangha, some of them sound really miraculous, and and I always tell people, you know, when they ask me why did I become a Buddhist, um, I don't say because you know there's so many miraculous qualities that, for the Buddha Dharma Sangha, because if it was if I was looking for miraculous qualities to base my faith on there was no need to go to buddhism you know you cannot beat the parting of the red sea can you you know i mean that's a pretty big one if you're talking about miracles you walk up the red sea parts you walk across it closes again you know you go up to some mountain there's a burning bush and you hear the you know the voice of god you know, there, there's enough miracles. You know, you talk about virgin birth, okay? So there's plenty of miracles, and in, in Western religions, that it can't be miracles that we base our faith in, okay? So that's why I think you know, learning about the Dharma Refuge in conjunction with learning about the four truths. Uh, really allows us to get a better grasp on exactly what it is we're taking refuge in. Yeah, and why we take refuge. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Uh, meditations on the first two of the four truths. Inspire the aspiration for liberation within us. Did I read that already? Generating true paths by practicing the three higher trainings will bring about true cessations and liberation. That's the middle level. Then meditation on the seven-point cause-and-effect instructions and the meditation on equalizing and exchanging self and others are the methods to generate bodhicitta the aspiration for full awakening to benefit all sentient beings. The method that leads to awakening is the practice of the six perfections, four ways of gathering disciples, and vajrayana. And so then there's the chart uh, on the following page, on page 175. Okay, so the level of practitioner, the meditations that lead you to generate that motivation, what the motivation is, and then the practices done to actualize the result of that motivation. So that's the standard way that the lamrim is set up. You know, what we've changed is uh, take refuge in the three jewels, which is now. Practices done to uh, actualize the result of the initial level motivation that has been moved down (laughs) a box. Okay, yeah. Uh, What else did we change? We uh... mm -hmm. The rest is pretty pretty much the same. Yeah, some different emphasis. Yeah, in, in the series, because um, the Lamrim goes very quickly through the middle level uh, being's practice, exceedingly quickly. Like, don't sneeze because you'll miss it. In the volumes of this series, we really go into depth in that. And uh, since the, the middle level being is talking about the three higher trainings, the second of which is concentration, we brought the whole explanation of how to develop concentration or meditative stability, which is usually found in the Lamrim Rim under the practices of the six perfections of the, high, of the advanced practitioner. We brought that whole description into uh, the, the higher training of concentration. So that that was explained in Volume 4 according to both uh, the, uh, the Pali tradition and the Sanskrit tradition, Yeah, both ways of explaining how to generate uh, concentration. So that was also a big, a big change and then ex- explaining the uh, middle path in, in much more depth. Because that middle book of the Lamrim is so deceptive, um, middle Path, but yeah, but but the but it's also the middle book in the all three right. English trans in the three yeah. three volumes of the English translation. So when um, in the Geshi studies, when there's where do they study Lojong? Where where you do? I mean, where are getting all the afflictive? Yeah, study they, of all the afflictions. Where does they it don't fall? Re- the. Uh, I don't think they do the Lojong studies per se in the Geshi studies. They'll do the Bodhicitta you know, which will include a lot of the lojong. But the lojong, the mind training, has particular kind of pithy instructions about how to transform adversity into the path. Not necessarily against the afflictions, the lojong, I mean, those thought trainings. The thought trainings are against the afflictions. They usually include... Thought training with the advanced level practice, but you asked how it was yeah. included in the Geshe studies, and I don't think they study the Lojong texts there, you know, because they're going through, um, you know, first they go through the the collection, the collective topics, and the my, you know, the uh, Lo, Lo Rig and Tar Rig and. Abhisamaya Alankara, and then, you know, they they do those books. And the Lojong texts came, they were written after most of those treatises, okay? So very often what the monks will do, similarly with Tantra, that's not, Included usually in the Geshi studies, uh, although now they're starting to, the, the, many of them will go to Tantra College after that. But usually, what they'll do is their main program is the Geshi studies, and then in the break time, they'll go when His Holiness teaches Lan Ram or give initiation. Actually, they, they're discouraged from taking initiations while they're doing the Geshi studies. <laughs> Because when you take initiations, then you have a lot of commitments, and you don't have time for your studies and debate. So they're really discouraged from that. Okay? Okay. So there are two types of initial capacity practitioners. One superior and the other inferior. So superior initial capacity practitioners seek higher rebirth as a human or a celestial being. Although they also seek the betterment of this life, their main focus is to create the causes for fortunate future rebirths. Lesser initial capacity practitioners think only of the betterment of this life and do not prepare for future lives although they may still create virtuous karma through being generous, living ethically, and so on. And so their good deeds, even though they don't have the motivation for a good rebirth, can still bring about a good rebirth. But if you have the motivation of a good rebirth, there's a better chance that those actions will bring about that result. Okay? So two levels of initial level. Practitioner. I thought if you didn't have the intention for, um, if your intention was just based on this life, that that was not considered Dharma practice. It's not considered Dharma practice, but you still create virtue. So don't confuse, don't think that Dharma pra- that you have to uh, cross that line into Dharma practice in order to create virtue. Ordinary people, non Buddhists, and so forth, can also create virtue. Yeah, but in here it calls it two types of initial capacity practitioners. Right. so there's two types. One who work only for the betterment of this life, but they also create virtue, and that virtue can ripen in a good rebirth. And then another type of initial level practitioner that has the Dharma motivation of seeking a future life. So there are two levels of beings within the initial level. Only one of them is a Dharma practitioner? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But don't get stuck up thinking you're a Dharma practitioner. Because because if you look at your motivation all day long, how much do we really even create a Dharma motivation before we do uh, our virtuous actions? Okay? So yeah it, uh, yeah okay yeah because that's that can be a very confusing point. It usually comes up uh, quite often. you you mean people who aren't Buddhist who don't strive for another a rebirth, they're automatically going to the lower realms because they don't create virtue? No, that's not accurate. you know they can create virtue. okay. Some of them are, are better than the Buddhists. Yeah, I mean they may not believe in future rebirth, but they keep beth- better, eth- uh, better uh, ethical conduct than some of the Buddhists who are saying, you know, uh, who are want to kill the Rohingya or whatever. Yeah. So you can't get stuck up thinking, oh, I'm a Buddhist, I'm superior to others, because it's a real individual thing, how, how a person practices. Those of you who grew up in cultures where the belief in rebirth is not prevalent may initially come to Buddhism with the motivation simply to improve the quality of this life. How many of you came to Buddhism with that motivation? All of us, yeah? Yeah. Okay. At the moment, you are ordinary, initial level individuals who would like to experience less stress and anger, better relationships, improved health, and more peace of mind in this life. Yeah, it's what most people want, isn't it? And you look to the Buddha's teachings as a way to that end. So that's good. You know, you buy a mindfulness app. And you do, you know, you meditate every morning with your mindfulness app, and and it helps you. Yeah, your mind calms down, you're a little bit nicer. Okay. But you don't have to think about, you know, future rebirth and all these kinds of difficult topics. Okay. By using the Dharma to become a more balanced person, you will engage in fewer destructive actions and more constructive ones. Okay, so that's good. You know, the person may not know about karma, they may not know about future lives, but you're helping them not to create so much negative karma and to create some positive karma. As time goes on, you will learn about the existence of future lives. Cyclic existence, liberation, awakening, and the paths leading to them. As you think about these topics and gain conviction in them, your perspective will expand, and you will want to create the causes to have a peaceful death and a good rebirth. Because that's the next most urgent thing that people think of. You know, I want a happy life, but yeah, I'm aware that I'm going to die. And, you know, well, maybe be reborn. So that's the next most urgent thing. How can I at least have a peaceful death? Okay. Because I don't know if I'm even going to have health care. And, you know, I, I don't know if hospice service is going to be available. And I don't know if I'm going to be, have dementia. And so how can I prepare for death? Then you will become aware of the dangers of cyclic existence and aspire to free yourself from it. So, this is as you're learning more. Okay. As your heart opens to others more and more, the thought of attaining awakening for the benefit of all beings will grow in your heart. In this way, you will progress on the path in an organic way. Okay. So, that's why we need all sorts of Buddhist centers, all sorts of teachers, because people are at different levels, you know. So, uh, you know, we need the people who teach Dharma light, yeah, because those people teach that, the, the people who practice it benefit, then maybe they start thinking, oh, I heard that that comes from Buddhism. What's Buddhism about? Then they start learning about Buddhism, you know, and they start thinking more deeply about some of these other topics, and they progress in that way. Okay? While Buddhism speaks about the importance of preparing for future lives, this does not mean we should disregard this life. Some people, they hear about Buddhists, Buddhist. Oh, I want to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. Everything I do is according to the eight worldly concerns. That's awful. I've got to stop the eight worldly concerns. I'm packing my bags, you know, including my electric toothbrush and a heater and a warm sleeping bag and my iPad, and I'm going up to the mountains and gonna live in a cave and I'm gonna attain enlightenment. Okay, this is what. All of us who first met the Dharma uh, in in India, except we didn't have iPods and iPads, then you know that they didn't exist. But you know, we were like, "This is fantastic! This is wonderful! We want to attain enlightenment asap." Yeah, and these are fantastic lamas. They're teaching us the whole path, and all we have to do is sit down and meditate. And we're gonna do it this lifetime. Okay? And then, as Venerable Sangha Kadra puts it, she says, the more I learned about the path, the more I realized it's gonna take longer than this lifetime. <laughs> yeah? But we started out with this amazing idealism, and we were all gonna do this, you know? And then the, f- the first crack I remember in, in that vision was when Lama asked one of the, the monks, uh, he was a Dutch monk, to uh, open a business in, in Kathmandu, an export business, to support the Sangha. And I was like, oh, he's going to work exporting things to sell? I'm not doing that. You know. But I'm going to follow my Lama, whatever my Lama says. And then for me, you know, what happened? Because I was going to stay in India, you know, forget about America. And, uh, you know, I was going to stay there and meditate and become a Buddha. And, and then I got sent to Italy. You know, Venerable Elizabeth walked by me during one tea break and said, Oh, Lama thinks it would be very good if you went to Italy and kept walking. <laughs> okay, so so slowly these kind of cracks appeared and then, uh, you know, we began to realize that the path is going to take a little bit longer than we initially thought. Yeah, just a little bit longer. Yeah, so, you know... He'll run his export business, he'll make a million dollars, then he'll go to the cave, you know. And I'll uh, go go to Italy a short time, and then come back to India, and go to my cave, okay. But we're all going to become awakened this lifetime. Yeah, because Lama said so. We can do it. Okay, yeah. And my big lesson in, in Italy was... I have a lot of anger. yeah, And it's going to be hard to become a Buddha if you have anger. Because <laughs> you've got to generate Bodhicitta to become a Buddha. And if you have a lot of anger, that interferes with generating Bodhicitta. Mm. So... You know, if only I could get all these sentient beings to act better, then I wouldn't have so much anger. Then I could generate bodhicitta. Okay, so, you know, it takes you a while to learn. <laughs> okay. If we want to have a fav- favorable future lives, properly taking care of this life, by being an honest person who refrains from harming or cheating others is important. By keeping good ethical conduct, we will have fewer problems in this life and will create the causes for fortunate future lives. Okay, so that's good. The paths practiced by these three levels of practitioners are not separate paths. One person passes through all three stages and, as he or she progresses. To remove the cognitive obscurations preventing full awakening, we first must remove afflictive obscurations and free ourselves from the sufferings of cyclic existence. To attain liberation by severing the afflictions from their root, we must first rein in the attachment to the happiness of this life, which stimulates us to engage in the ten destructive paths of action. Okay, So that's the first thing to start to give up is attachment to the happiness of this life. And that's the demarcation between a dharma action and a non-dharma action is whether it's motivated only by the uh, uh, attachment to the happiness of this life. In this life, in this way, the practitioners of initial, middle, and advanced capacities refer to one person at three different times in their spiritual journey. Such a practitioner gradually and sequentially develops the three levels, each one indispensable for those that follow. Okay, so it's a gradual path and there's no shortcut. Okay, you got to develop the whole thing and you can't skip. Uh, But again, how each of us does that, you know, some of us may do some of the more advanced practitioner practices and in that way it may help us uh, develop the realizations of the middle level, you know. uh, So there's ways in which. don't get the idea that it's absolutely serial like this, and you can't progress to the next stage until you absolutely realize each one of the the dharma uh, things in order. You know, don't don't think like that because as you learn the whole path, how what you learn about the uh, let's say the bodhicitta teachings. Will help you develop a much greater appreciation and understanding of a precious human life. Okay. And what you learn about the sufferings of samsara in the middle will help you generate bodhicitta as an advanced practitioner. So, all these different stages, uh, they influence each other. Yeah. So, we have to realize all of them, but don't have a very narrow mind of, you know, well, I can only study this and I can't study any of the rest of them because I haven't done this. Okay? But you you learn everything and as you do, you really see how there's a lot of crossover and how different parts of the path uh, stimulate you and inspire you to uh, understand other parts of the path. Okay, on the other hand... The practice for each of these three individuals is complete. If at present we wish only for a future of fortunate rebirth, we will find a complete method to actualize our aspiration in the path of the initial capacity practitioner. On the basis of first practicing the initial level of Middle level practitioners will find a complete path to fulfill their aspirations for liberation in the practice of the middle level. Okay, if we seek full awakening, we will proceed through all three stages by first practicing the first two stages, which will lead us to practice the advanced path. Okay, so according to what your aspiration is, you can also find a complete path. For whatever it is you want to attain spiritually uh, in either the initial level practice, the middle, or the advanced Mm -hmm. capacity practice. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, For advanced practitioners, the first two paths are said to be paths in common with initial capacity practitioners and middle compassionate capacity practitioners, because they are not exclusively for the initial and middle capacity practitioners. So, you know, if you want, if you're, you, uh, you're, aspir- you're aspiring for liberation, then on the basis of the initial capacity person, you also do the practice of the middle capacity person, okay? Your practice of the initial capacity... You're doing it in common with initial capacity people, but you're not doing just the initial capacity practice because your aim is the middle capacity. Okay? So if you if your aim is for full awakening, then you also do the initial level pa- practice in common with that. You do the middle level practice and you're practicing in common with the middle level practitioners and then you're doing the advanced level practice. Okay? So if you practice the initial level but you're doing it in common with the initial level because you're actually aimed for full awakening it's going to influence how you practice the initial level, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're doing the same practices in common, but your motivation is really different. And how you look at those practices you're doing is going to be different because you already have part of your uh, uh, higher level aspiration in your mind and you want to go in that direction. Hey, is this making sense to people? Okay. I think, for example, when you practice a sadhana, it comes becomes clear there um, because um, you you know how a sadhana is structured and the mm-hmm. integration of lamrim and starting basically with refuge, the so four measure pools, mm-hmm. and having the concentration practices there too and wisdom. So it's all um, three levels. And um, yeah, I. Like yeah, that. so your sadhana practice is actually an advanced level practice. Yes. Yeah, but you can see that it includes all so many of the practices from the first, from the initial middle le- level practices in it. You know, which is why you need to master the initial and middle level practices. Otherwise, when you get to uh, tantra, you don't know what to do. You're kind of lost. So in common with also indicates that advanced practitioners aiming for full awakening do not practice the initial and middle paths exactly the same way as initial and middle level practitioners do. While initial level practitioners are satisfied with aspiring to approve the quality of their lives in cyclic existence, practitioners aiming for full awakening have a more extensive uh, aspiration right from the beginning. Although they lack the realization of bodhicitta, they do all the initial and middle level practices with some degree of bodhicitta. Okay, so that's in their mind. The I'm going to Dharamsala is in your mind, even though you're in the car that's driving to Spokane. Okay. Um, okay, yeah, we'll go through this, the rest of this section. As a commentary on the Lamp of the Path. Tsongkhapa's Lamrim Chenmo followed Atisha's presentation. The Sakya tradition also follows Atisha's sequence when it presents abandoning the four attachments. The first Sakya pa- patriarch, Sachen Kunga Ningpo, in parting from the four clinging, says If you cling to this life, you are not a Dharma practitioner. If you cling to three realms, that is not renunciation. If you cling to self interest, you are not a bodhisattva. If grasping arises, it is not the view. Okay. Here we begin by freeing ourselves from the eight worldly concerns that focus on the happiness of only our present life. So that's if you cling to this life, you are not a dharma practitioner. By abandoning them, you will become an actual dharma practitioner. We then cultivate renunciation of samsara and the determination to be free from birth in all three samsaric realms, contemplating that all other sentient beings, so that's if you cling to three realms, that is not renunciation, that's the middle practitioner being. Uh, contemplating that all other sentient beings suffer in samsara just as we do, we broaden our perspective and generate the altruistic intention of bodhicitta. (coughs) To fulfill bodhicitta's aim of attaining full awakening, we must gain the correct view of the two truths and abandon all grasping at the two extremes of inherent existence and total non-existence by realizing emptiness. Okay, so that's if you cling... uh, To self-interest, you are not a bodhisattva, and if grasping arises, it is not the view. In this way, this short verse from the Sakyapas reflects the same approach of the three ascending levels of motivation for Dharma practice presented by Atisha. Now here, this part is interesting. The 5th century Theravada, Pali tradition master, Buddhaghosa, thought along the same lines when he described inferior, medium, and superior levels of ethical conduct. So his book, okay, the Vasudhi is standard fare for the Theravada teachings. We learn the the, the Tibetans think Theravadas don't aspire for full awakening. Yeah, they just want liberation. Listen to what Buddhaghosa says and see if that preconception is correct or not. That ethical conduct motivated by craving, the purpose of which is to enjoy continued existence, is inferior. That practice, that ethical conduct, practiced for the purpose of one's own deliverance, is medium. The virtue of the perfections, or parami, Practice for the deliverance of all sentient beings is superior. Quoted from one of the basic texts followed in the Theravada tradition. Okay. Ethical conduct yeah is first chapter verse thirty three. Ethical conduct and other dharma practices motivated by a desire for a good rebirth in cyclic existence while virtuous are inferior. Practices done with the wish to liberate ourselves from cyclic existence are excellent but not supreme. The perfections that are done with the wish to liberate all sentient beings are superior. While initially our motivation may be limited, as our wisdom and compassion expand, our motivation will as well. Okay? So we will stop here and continue next Friday night. Yeah? I haven't been to that many uh, Western monastic gatherings. Mm-hmm but some of the people that I spoke to who are Theravadan practitioners, mm-hmm. they don't seem to have that view. So I wonder, in your experience, Venomola, is this view quite common or on the rare side? Uh, it's more on the rare side, mm. yeah. But um, it's there, at least in the scriptures. Yeah. And they do uh, say, point out different people as as bodhisattvas. You know, a few days ago, um, a few of us were having a discussion. It was on for Saturday, and we were talking about at what level um, practitioner do you have? Um, do you stop having to purify negative karma? Um, and <laughs> when you become a Buddha. Yeah, because yeah, because the, <laughs> there's the discussion of well, our, our hearts have they're liberated, but they still negative karma can ripen for them. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah and eighth, eighth level Bodhisattvas are out of samsara, but they still do purification practices. Okay. Yeah, all the way up to awakening, you purify and create merit. You're uh, kind of thinking, "Oh, let's see. if I get there, oh then I can stop saying vajrasattva. Oh, what a relief. You know, then I can go to bed earlier every night. (laughs)